0: welcome to new books in asian american studies a channel of the new books network i'm your host ian shin today on our podcast we have professor david atkinson speaking about his book the burden of white supremacy containing asian migration in the british empire and the united states published in 2016 by the university of north carolina press david atkinson is associate professor of history at purdue university where he is also affiliate faculty in american studies in the school of interdisciplinary studies he specializes in the history of U.S. foreign relations, diplomatic history, the history of migration, and international history. In our conversation, David and I spoke about his process for researching and writing a history that stretches across four continents. This ambitious and wide-ranging research sheds light on the local conditions and idiosyncrasies that define the restriction of Asian mobility across the Anglophone world in the early 20th century. I really enjoyed reading The Burden of White Supremacy and speaking about it with David Atkinson, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Ian Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to David Atkinson about his book, The Burden of White Supremacy, containing Asian migration in the British Empire and the United States, published in 2016 by the University of North Carolina Press. David is Associate Professor of History at Purdue University. David, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. David, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, as uh, your listeners can probably tell from my bizarre accent, uh, I'm originally from the north of England. I'm from uh, Leeds in the north of England. And um, I I went to university in England, my undergraduate university in England, to Manchester University, uh, where I studied American Studies and you know, American studies in Britain is is very much about politics, about history, about literature. So those were the kind of focuses uh, of that of that study. Uh, but part of doing American studies in Britain means you get to do an exchange year in the United States. So I spent a year at George Washington University as an undergraduate. That was uh, just just transformative for, for me um, in terms of my my interest in history and my specific interest in diplomatic history. Um, so that was, a, that was such a great experience. The other great thing about that experience was I met my American wife and uh, ultimately moved to the United States. So I've, I've lived in the States for close to 20 years now, and I, I did my PhD in the United States at uh, Boston University um, from 20, 2002 to, uh, I think, 2010. And that was just a, a tremendous experience for me. I worked with a, an international historian there by, uh, by the name of William Keeler. And uh, who, who was just such a great mentor, uh, if for nothing else, that he gave me carte blanche. I mean, I had an enormous amount of latitude, uh, which is why this project uh, is as capacious a, as it is. I mean, I think sometimes another mentor might have slowed me down or, or, or circumscribed me in some ways. Perhaps I would even circumscribe one of my own students and, uh, and limit them in what they were trying to do. But, but Bill did not do that. And uh, that let me run wild, as you, as you can see. And then uh, upon graduating, I, I was lucky enough to get uh, this position at Purdue University, where I've now been for seven years, and nominally as the uh, U.S. foreign relations historian. Um, but as you can tell from, from this book, I, I, I think and teach and, and research much more broadly than that quite
0: often. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I, I would love to talk a little bit about the, the capaciousness of the topic and the research. But before we get to that, I'm curious um, – how, um, how you came to become interested in diplomatic history, you mentioned that in American studies, uh, in, in uh, Britain, that the study of that is very much focused on politics and history and literature. Um, is that what led you to uh, an interest in diplomatic history? Or, or how did you cultivate that particular topical interest?
1: You know, it's um, it's going to be a word that I will use an awful lot in in the next hour or so, and that's contingency. And and one of the contingencies of my uh, of my life of my life story was that I happened to be at George Washington University on this exchange program uh, in 1996, 1997, and that was a tremendously fortuitous time to be there because um, they were doing some incredible work on uh, internationalizing diplomatic history. So what what was happening? Um, at the time was you had a lot of people – well, not a lot of people, but you had people who were able to get into um, Eastern European, post-Soviet Russian archives, uh, Chinese archives, Vietnamese archives, and that was a real, um, a real movement in, in the mid-'90s. Um, and, and that was transforming the study of the Cold War in ways that, that were just inconceivable – Ten years before and it just so happened that GW was was at the center of much of this work uh, one of the history professors there James Hirschberg was was um directing the Cold War International History Project there at the time. And they, were, they were beginning to collate and organize and publish a lot of the primary sources from Eastern European archives and Russian archives, which was particularly useful because quite often uh, there was a, a good deal of capriciousness about those archives. They would open and close arbitrarily and all of a sudden things you were able to see you couldn't uh, and so on. So they were putting this material out there and I was fascinated by that. Um, being able to do that kind of work. Um, and on the other hand, they also still to this day have, uh, have at George Washington University something called the National Security Archives, which does incredible work, um, uh, working on uh, freedom of information requests, trying to fill in a lot of the gaps that we know are there in our understanding of American foreign relations, especially during the Cold War. And they were just turning up some incredible material. Um, So it was just an incredibly fortuitous and exciting and dynamic place to be um, that really hooked me in particular on, on American Foreign Relations Scholarship.
0: And how do you then see yourself um, teaching at the intersection of the history of U.S. foreign relations or U.S. diplomatic history and immigration, right, which I think as, as some of your, uh, the actors in your book would, would themselves say is, is sort of the quintessential domestic issue of uh, you know, who, who you allow to, to come into the country. How do you see these two different subfields uh, of U.S. history interacting with one another today?
1: Well, I'll say first of all that everything i've just described uh if you've read the book makes no sense right because i'm not a cold war historian anymore and what i quickly realized was um that if you were going to do this kind of history if you were going to work in a cold war period you were going to have to do um some really truly international scholarship and and i simply did not have the language skills i couldn't work in chinese or polish or hungarian or russian so uh and that wasn't likely likely that i was going to pick that up so i um I actually the, the the genesis of me working in diplomatic history, the 19th century, and, and migration um, came from another particularly fortuitous experience I had between moving to the United States and um, starting my PhD program. I, I worked at Harvard University as an administrator, and as part of that, I had the opportunity to take classes um, at Harvard as a as a kind of non-degree student, and I jumped at that opportunity. Um, and, and one of the first classes I took was with uh, Akira Irie, who, of course, is, is one of the absolute guiding lights of international history, of thinking about internationalizing American history, um, of, of the cultural turn in American history, of the transnational turn. So I just imbibed an incredible amount of fascinating uh, insights from him over the course of, of that class. And one of the things I did for him in a, in a paper there was I decided to get out of my comfort zone and and do something quite different. And and, uh, I wrote a paper for him on um, the Paris Peace Conference and the British Empire delegation at the Paris Peace Conference. And what I quickly discovered was this issue of Asian migration um, was at the center of most of their discussions, as as I relay in uh, Chapter chapter 6 of the book. So the genesis of the, the dissertation itself and the genesis of my interest in migration and diplomacy um, really came out of that experience um, with him, and I was I was really struck uh, a by you know obviously what a global problem this was, um, but b uh, uh, getting back to what you what you just described, I was really struck by the notion that we treated our you know this was the late nineties uh, early two thousands we, we treated in the scholarship. Migration and immigration questions is very much domestic questions that ha- that are bound up in sovereignty and uh, and conversations about which take place within the nation state, not between nation states. And that was a fascinating point uh, that that uh, that really guided me here because I discovered very quickly in, in, the, in the primary sources that that was simply not the case. That quite often. Um, You'd have to discuss immigration and migration across borders because it was an international problem, an international issue. Um, Anytime you've got people traversing borders, you've got uh, an international or transnational issue. Um, So that's, that's how I actually got involved in this particular project.
0: Yeah, and, and we'll talk more about um, some of those uh, issues in, in Chapter 6 that you raise about the peace conferences um, later in the interview. Um, to return quickly to what you said earlier about the capric- the, the sort of capaciousness of, of this book, um, it, it really is – Uh, uh, ambitious in so many ways. I think the the sort of most uh, obvious factor to readers and listeners will be its geographic scope covering Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, and the U.S., um, so before we dig into the chapters, you know, for, for folks who are listening, who may be, uh, writing their own, uh, dissertations or their own books, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what it was like to do the research for this project. For example, did you begin with all of these sites in mind or did some of these come earlier than, than others and, and, and how did they sort of, uh, get, um, uh, put together in into this book as a whole?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it was born of, of utter hubris. I mean, uh, You know, the notion that I would do all this research as a a graduate student never really occurred to me as foolish, Um, although in retrospect, it was profoundly expensive and time-consuming, but... um, know, I, I was I was lucky in a way because, of course, well, not lucky. I did this on purpose. They're all English-speaking countries, so it, it smoothed my path into the archive. Uh, I could do multi-archival international research in a language with which I was uh, eminently familiar. So that was that made the whole process less daunting. Um, but it, it never crossed my mind not to do this work in this way. I mean, it seemed to me that um, at a time I was in graduate school. It was around two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, you know, we were going through a number of important turns the, the, the transnational turn, the multi archival international turn in, in foreign relations scholarship. And it seemed to me you simply had to do this kind of work if, if you wanted to do justice to the history you were writing about, and more practically, if you wanted to get a job. Um, so to me that was that was a given and as i said uh bill keeler my my mentor my advisor never never put the brakes on so i never stopped uh, and i got lucky with my program uh providing funding um at the right moments and uh, and and making this possible but that's you know all that sounds very exciting and it was but but the the thing i learned over the course of doing this that i never really realized was it can it can be quite alienating uh, and unmooring to do this kind of work because um you know the minute you step out of your disciplinary field specific uh network or world and and you know start moving into different different um different subfields it can be it can be quite daunting and, and you know one of the things i've run into over the course of my career really is um is this guy really an american foreign relations historian you know this book is 75 percent british empire and you know as a graduate student that never crossed my mind that that might have uh, implications professionally um, I just saw it as you know I was following the trend of the field and this is what the field was urging people to do and the scholarship was was urging people to do so I did it um, but the job market had not caught up with those with those changes the uh, you know some departments had not caught up with those changes um, you know in many ways the fields are still structured around these these geographic specifications so um, that that turned out to be slightly more challenging than than I anticipated and, and, and by the same token you know as an American foreign relations historian to, to be working in migration 10-15 um, years ago uh, th- that was an unusual move and, it, and like there was a separate and still is in many ways a separate kind of migration history um, field and and you know I, I wasn't necessarily going to all those conferences and networking with those individuals and I felt like I wasn't really a foreign relations American foreign relations historian anymore and you know so it's um it it was an an incredible experience to spend time in, in these kinds of places um, and do work in archives in these places but by the same token it it can be uh, it can be somewhat alienating I found maybe that's just me but that that's that's what I learned, I think, over the course of this.
0: Yeah, it's it's. Um, I uh, agree with you about the the sort of challenge navigating between the standard kind of geographical divisions in in our field of history, um, and sort of the more um, creative or, or or innovative ways that people are starting to think beyond those boundaries. Um, you know, I, I it does seem to me, you know, some of my my colleagues. Um, you know have have started uh, finding more successes um joining departments as international historians um and and you know come in as uh, an international historian have training in international history so hopefully your story will be inspiring and useful to them um as as uh, graduate students and early career scholars continue um to to move the needle in that in that regard um, yeah and i think that you're right that's what's happening yeah yeah um the the other um, sort of uh, overarching um, uh, question that I have about the book is is about its organization. I think part of what's uh, interesting to me is uh, the, the not only the the research process uh, for doing this multinational uh, multi um, archival. Um, uh, research is, is complex, but also then weaving the story together um, is is also complicated. And and just for our listeners, the book is, uh, in addition to the intro and the conclusion, the book is organized into seven chapters. The first three chapters look at Australia and New Zealand, uh, look at South Africa and Canada and the US respectively. And then chapter four kind of serves as a, a pivot that brings these threads together to think about why and how attempts to internationalize Asian exclusion ultimately fail. And then the final three chapters, Examine Asian exclusion during and after World War One, um, drawing from multiple locales within each of those chapters. So I wanted to um, uh, sort of use that as a jumping-off point to uh, ask you about how you thought about organizing such a complicated project. Um, you know, after you'd finished the research, um, how did you decide uh, what the architecture of the book was going to look like?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really great question, Ian. And uh, I'm delighted that you uh, <laughs> you saw there was actually an architecture in place. Um, you know, it, it's when I when I started this project. Well, let me say this first. I'll tell you, an, uh, your, the listeners, a very honest tale of how this became a, a book from a dissertation. When I started the dissertation. Um, I went looking for transnational evidence uh, of, of solidarity and collaboration among these different projects. I mean, that was that was what I was looking for. And I was driven by uh, that transnational turn to go looking for transnationalism. Um, so the dissertation had, had, had tried to kind of shoehorn some things in um, that, that I was never entirely comfortable with. And I'd also adopted a, a different analytical frame. I'd used whiteness. Um, which we can talk about if you want to um, which I subsequently jettisoned for a number of different reasons so so what happened after the dissertation was I had to revisit this book as so many of us do and, and decide what I was going to do with this and, and I was uncomfortable that I'd not really found any kind of evidence at least at the level I was looking at which is the diplomatic international imperial um, governance level that that there was a great deal of um, collaboration and that I, I wasn't seeing uh much more than, than actually tension and division along these lines so so I had to think about what I was going to do um, with that and, and I kept coming back to the idea that um, this was this was a, a cautionary tale in my view um, about the transnational turn about how we use and think about transnationalism and, and it, it I kept returning more and more to the question of contingency that that, that classic C of, of the five C's of historical study that we teach our students, right? Um, and, and it struck me that there were a lot of contingencies that were mitigating, were were prohibiting um, this kind of collaboration and solidarity that, that other scholars were beginning to talk about. And so that then translates into the first three chapters of the book. first three chapters that take a regional approach are really about trying to elucidate and, and explicate the myriad, I think, contingencies that are at play um, in each individual site and I'm sure we'll talk about those in a little more detail later and, and so that that made sense then to kind of have that first part of the book be about you know what's different here what's what's causing distinction what's causing difference um, which is really what I stress in those first three chapters and then uh, exactly as you say chapter four became a moment where okay now let me step back and kind of take this story more global, more international, um, uh, and start to think about how this plays out on the international scene and and, uh, the the kind of uh, post-fallout from the the 1907 riots in in, uh, British Columbia and and Washington State were a good opportunity to do that, as was – Theodore Roosevelt's dispatch of the Great White Fleet and the circumnavigation of the world that gave me an opportunity to kind of follow these these strands out into the world, uh, and then the war, of course, of the peace conference that follows. So it it kind of it's about stepping back as a as an author, as a as a dissertator and an author to to kind of think about what what's what does this arc look like? What is if you're going to do change over time? One of those other great seas. Um, of historical study, what what does that change over time do to this story? And, and that's that's how I began to think about it, just to kind of think about the contingencies in, in the regions, um, and then step back and kind of flay this out um, and start to think about the global implications. Before, and you know, I kind of return at the end um, to those contingencies because that's what I see happening in 1921 to
0: 24. I hope that the the folks who are listening, the listeners, will will um, uh, appreciate hopefully this first segment of our conversation, which is really about the the craft of history for folks who are listening who are working again on their own projects or perhaps graduate students to sort of think about uh, both how to do this kind of research, but then also how to put it together uh, within a narrative. But as you you've already started to. Um, to help us think about the now the history and the, the substance of the of the research itself, perhaps we can pivot a little bit now to talk about uh, the chapters themselves. And again, you know, one of the things I have to flag for our listeners is that you know it's such a rich book; it covers so much um, that it'll be impossible for us within the time that we have to to really dig into the the, the richness um, of of the book. But um, I wonder if we can maybe start by talking about. Um, chapters one, two, and three almost together. Um, because as you said, you know, one of the things that you wanted to do within those first three chapters is to tell about the uh, idiosyncrasies of each of these places. So the first chapter is about uh, Australasia, um, the second chapter about South Africa, and then the third chapter about North America, specifically Canada and the United States. Can you tell us what is distinctive about each of these places in terms of how they react to the, uh, prospects or the reality of Asian mobility, uh, in the early 20th century.
1: So that to me was, was the most interesting thing about, about this, uh, this story. I, um, uh, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I was, I was working through these, these, what I saw as the contingencies of each, each region. Um, and, and trying to pass that and tease that out became became part of the challenge of chapter one, two, and three. So I think you know you you can reasonably take Australasia, um, Australia and New Zealand, and think about them as having a particular set of contingencies, both regionally and then individually. So one of the one of the things I stress in chapter one about Australasia is the geographical um, distance um, that that. that that they feel and have from Great Britain and from the center of international relations as it was in the imperial, uh, in the imperial world at the time. So they, 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 you cannot escape when you look at primary sources during this period, uh, especially around questions of Asian migration, you cannot escape this anxiety um, that, that New Zealanders and Australians, white New Zealanders and Australians feel uh, about being so far from Great Britain, so far from the Royal Navy by this time, um, and, and so so close to Asia. Uh, and, and that, that geographic um, contingency is absolutely key to the way they think about this issue. Um, you know, in, in New Zealand, you have a situation where there are very, very few Asian migrants, in fact. Uh, especially um, South Asian and, uh, and Japanese, which is the focus of my book, um, they're just not there. They're, they're not there. But what New Zealanders are terrified of is is that they will be there if they don't do something to to prevent it. So, in the New Zealand case, you're really looking at, at what I call a, a kind of prophylactic um, effort to 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 prohibit, to prevent, to preempt. Uh, any kind of movement whereas in australia you do actually have uh, a lot more uh, japanese uh, to a lesser extent south asian immigrants by the turn of the century so you know you've got, you've got to think about all these um, these contingencies i think at the same time you have you have the fact that very soon just after they they, they signed their own laws in 1901 in 1902 you get the anglo japanese alliance and that the the negotiations over that issue um, have been going on uh, for, for the year uh, preceding. So, you know, the, the international, the imperial situation is beginning to shift and it's beginning to change um, in Japan's favor as far as the Australians and the New Zealanders are concerned. And there's a, there's a great sense of abandonment by the Australians and New Zealanders um, about what Britain is doing here because they have to, uh, they, can't, they can't project their naval power uh, into the Pacific anymore and still protect as they see it. Um, the, the British home isles against, you know, a burgeoning German navy. So all those kind of contingencies, whether they're geographic, whether they're literally about uh, about the numbers of people, whether they're about the international and imperial politics, um, come into play. I think in, in Australia, Australasia, and, ch- and kind of change the way things things play out. It's a profoundly different situation in South Africa, and especially in the Transvaal colony, which is what I uh, focus on here. And what I'm really interested in in the South African case is the decision by the British government and, and uh, the British um, High Commissioner in, in South Africa, uh, Milner, Lord Milner, to import Chinese, to actively import Chinese indentured laborers. And, and this leads to an enormous uh, imperial fight um, argument between uh, between those who want to kind of rebuild the Transvaal and exploit the gold mines in particular um, by using indentured Chinese labor and those, especially in Australia and New Zealand and across the, the white South African landscape, who feel like they've just fought a war um, uh, to, to, to protect the whiteness of South Africa, one way or another, um, and, and that's going to be solid now by, by the importation of Chinese. So you have in, in in the Transvaal, uh, just a, an incredibly different landscape when it comes to the imperial, colonial, um, international politics. You also have an entirely different um, racial landscape in South Africa. Of course, you've got um, you know minority white uh, colonies that that um, are just living and breathing this incredibly intense anxiety, racial anxiety about uh, what they see as the kind of looming. Um, looming disaster of, of African uh, takeover. You know, this is a constant feature. If the Australians are constantly worried about a Japanese invasion, um, then you have in, in white South Africa a similar constellation of, of fears around, around being suffused by this kind of black African mass. Uh, you see that a lot. Uh, and of course, this is a conquered colony this is, the transvaal is is a conquered defeated um foreign power that is now a british colony and is being administered as such so that creates a different range of political possibilities and economic possibilities and, and imperial issues um, that I think transect and intersect with the politics of Asian migration. So it, it's an entirely more complicated, complex, very different situation, and that informs the politics that will take place there uh, when it comes to debating Asian migration. And then, of course, in, in, uh, in the United States and Canada, once again, uh, a completely different, um, in many respects, set of contingencies. You have uh, a case here where you have two different two, – a colony in a country that are uh, actually united by a land border, which changes the complexion of the debate over Asian migration. And in my view, and in the view of you know other scholars, does actually facilitate at least uh, a limited n- amount of transnational cooperation, at least initially – um, that's going to change after 1907, I argue, at least. But uh, So you do have a, a, a kind of um, a, a unifying thread there in that these are connected by, by land. Um, and, and you do have uh, a lot more Japanese in particular, but increasingly South Asian migrants moving through British Columbia, Washington, California, Oregon at this time. So that creates uh, a different kind of politics, different kind of urgency. Um, but... You know, I, w- I would also say that the, the British Columbian case and the Californian case or the American case and the Canadian case are also quite different from one another. Um, as I've just hinted, you know, these are uh, one's a colony, one's a country. So in the, in the Canadian case, British Columbians cannot simply act uh, against, you know, the, the federal government in Ottawa. They also have to be concerned about the British government uh, across the Atlantic, which also has to be concerned about its new ally in Japan, which also has to be concerned about its uh, prize colony in South Asia. So that's really kind of creating a different constellation of um, of, of imperial and international and diplomatic considerations on all sides uh, above the 49th parallel. And then in the United States, of course, there's a similar federal system, but there isn't that additional layer of uh, of authority. So so that's kind of, I think in each case, I hope I've given some at least brief sense of, of just how complex the contingencies in each region are and how those contingencies, I think, um, inform the politics of, of the region. I think uh, I think it's really important to pay attention to that.
0: That's a wonderful sort of recap of, of these different sets of contingencies. And I think one of the um, things that listeners will hopefully find really exciting about the book is the different scales at which these pol- these political questions move through from sort of local and state and provincial to uh, national to regional to imperial um, perhaps we can dig a little bit now into each of those chapters or, or parts of them uh, and follow up on some of these um, these issues specifically one of the um, and I want to start by by asking you about um, the case of South Africa because one of the critiques that pro exclusion groups made about the indenture of Chinese laborers uh, that proposal that Milner put forward was it's essentially uh, undemocratic nature right that in other words such a significant policy should be left up to the people of the Transvaal Colony, and not up to a small group of, uh, of political leaders and the and the Randlords, the business leaders um, in, in in South Africa, this struck me as one of the commonalities, maybe across your case studies, where. Appointed executives maybe were more likely to exercise a kind of moderating influence compared to elective bodies. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically later in, in the book of the of US Congress, the US Congress in Chapter seven, that were responsive to other priorities. So to what extent you, you, you sort of alluded to this earlier? Uh, in terms of uh, the Transvaal being a conquered colony, to what extent do you see forms of political institutions mattering um, in terms of the uh, uh sort of moderate versus uh, um, uh completely reactionary impulses uh, around uh, asian uh exclusion
1: yeah, that's a great question um. You know, in, in terms of the, the Transvaal, as you say, this is a conquered colony with, with essentially an occupation government in place, and, uh, hoisted upon the colony by, by the British government in London. And, and you know, Milner's such a high-handed, uh, high handed character. He, he is determined, absolutely determined, to import Chinese indentured labor. Because, as far as he's concerned, that is the absolute key to the success. Um, Of Transvaal as a a British colony. If you can get the gold flowing then you can bring in um, in his view more white settlers which will then solve the Boer problem which will then generate um, connections with the British metropole which will then increase the economic uh, value of the colony and so on and so forth. So you've got this great irony that that Chinese indentured laborers are in Milner's view the key to increasing the white population and the Anglo-white population specifically uh, of, of the transvaal and therefore south africa um you know that that is inconceivable uh anywhere else in the british empire that's governed by a, 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 a independent legislature as australia and new zealand are um you know that that kind of uh that kind of action would would have been, uh, as I say, inconceivable. By the same token, you know, you you have this intervention by, especially Richard Seddon, the New Zealand Prime Minister, who is kind of operating on the notion that the British Empire functions as a democracy, um, that the British Empire exists, um, especially as far as white men are concerned, especially as far as the white uh, dominions are concerned, as they're beginning to be called by this point. You know, these are self-governing white settlements. Settlements. Um, white countries increasingly and uh, and they want a say in the empire and that's one of the great kind of overarching uh, issues that's in the background of all of this this book really is about what what's that relationship going to be um, how much democracy in essence will there be in in a british imperial sense uh, there's talk about federation and commonwealth and all that at the time so i think you know you have these white White leaders in um, quasi democracies in in Australia and New Zealand who think that uh, the empire is running on that that level as at least as far as white men are concerned, um, and the British government simply is not willing to entertain that notion in the Transvaal. This is this is a conquered colony, and it will be it will be exploited as such um, until such time as it's as it becomes self um, self perpetuating, and, and uh, that that's one of the central tensions between. This, certainly New Zealand and, and Britain during this period over the question of the importation of Chinese. So I think it matters a great deal. But I, w- I would also say, you know, the, the federal um, the federal systems of, of North America uh, create some really interesting politics that, that complicate this too. Um, you know, you, as I've suggested in, in my previous answer, you know, we, we have a situation where you have multiple layers of authority, in many of these places, but especially in North America, you have, uh, you know, provinces and states, but you also then have federal governments, which are often very far from the provinces and states where Asian migration is a concern. Um, and then you have, of course, in, in, North, in Canada, another layer of authority in the British government, which ultimately retains suzerainty over some very key issues, foreign policy uh, being one of them. Um, So you've got these layers of authority within the British Empire and within even individual colonies that that I think are really complicating uh, for those who wish to just simply carte blanche and explicitly and racially um, uh, reject Chinese migration. I should say Asian migration.
0: And I think one of the things that you, you then sort of help us to understand is how, you know, in, in the case of South Africa, it's sort of an imposition of the indenture. Lord Milner, you know, sees this as the way forward and, and has uh, imperial support for it. In places like Australia and New Zealand, you see a different uh, sort of policy solution that comes up to Asian mobility. And this is the Natal formula, uh, Natal being uh, 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 also of South African um, 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 uh, connected to South Africa, I should say. Um, so so um, can you tell us a little bit about the Natal formula and, and how it works uh, to expose sort of these kinds, uh, both expose and then repair or paper over these imperial divisions um, and, and how it compares to uh, other policy solutions that we begin to see around uh, Asian migrations during this period?
1: So, uh, you know, the British see it exactly the way you've just described it. This is an opportunity to paper over and repair um, some of these burgeoning uh, imperial tensions, intra-imperial tensions, but also international tensions. That are that are emerging over Asian migration, and the British figure, you know, this is this is a perfect solution. So the Natal formula essentially was a literacy test, um, and other scholars have traced this actually back to the United States and some of the literacy tests that were imposed on African American voting in the South, and that this became then a solution um, to migration issues in in the South African colony of Natal. So so what would happen essentially in uh, in the Australian case is you would. You would be um, required to pass uh, a literacy test, an education test. They called it for even more, to even more, disguise what its actual intent was. Um, if you were anybody immigrating to Australia uh, on a you'd be you'd be you'd have to um, pass a literacy test. Now, what this would be is the. It would entirely depend upon the, the immigration officer. The immigration officer would look at, at, at me, for instance, as a white English-speaking male and give me a literacy test in English uh, and ask me to, to basically copy out a 50-word paragraph um, to, to show that I was educated, literate enough. To be able to copy this passage, if they saw that I was a Japanese individual who was looking to immigrate to Australia, they would not give me um, a Japanese paragraph, and they likely wouldn't give me an English paragraph either, because there was a pretty good chance that that uh, a, a Japanese person, uh, certainly of a higher higher uh, education uh, and status in Japan, would know English. So what you end up with is is the Japanese individual or the South Asian individual would be tested in uh, Greek. Or Czech, or uh, in some cases you even have Cornish um, or Welsh um, languages that no one could, you know, could ever be expected to know. Um, and that way, they could be denied entry to Australia on a on the basis of education and literacy rather than race. Of course, the the immigration officer is is judging. Um, how to how to make that happen? So, from the perspective of the British, this is brilliant. This is perfect because this is colorblind. This is simply a literacy test, which is you know uh, not uncommon across the globe in in all kinds of contexts. Um, and, and that way you don't upset the Japanese by explicitly racially uh, excluding them. And in fact, the Japanese um, actually were, were not averse to this as a solution to this problem. They had indicated their willingness to accept this um, because it wouldn't bring with it the stain of, of racial exclusion. That's the biggest concern they had. Um, they didn't want to be kind of treated as, as racially distinct. This is an era in which Japan is, is uh, a burgeoning regional power, at least in, in East Asia, and is beginning to see itself as, as an imperial power, one that ought to have um, some level of equality with the, with the great European powers in the United States. So, so from their perspective, too, this is a good solution. The problem is, as far as the Australians are concerned in in their parliament, uh, this isn't good enough. This isn't going to be strict enough. It's much better according to almost half of the Australian Parliament, it's much better to to say what you want to do. Um, you know, let's just be honest here. We do not want um, you know, uh, non-white immigrants coming into Australia and we should set our immigration policy uh, along those lines explicitly so that we don't have a problem down the line. And Once we've kind of ripped this band-aid off and, and offended Japan, they'll get over it and we'll ensure the whiteness of Australia. So this is kind of That's a central debate that I describe in in chapter one that's going on here, that that Australians aren't arguing about um, whether or not to ban Asian migrants. They are arguing over how to do it. Are they going to do it in a way that satisfies Britain and Japan? or are they going to do it in an explicitly racial way that satisfies those uh, who who were, who were intent upon making the first act of Australian national life uh, a racial one to, to create a white Australia? So it's, um, it's, it's not quite the salve that the British imagine it to be because it's almost immediately rejected by half the Australian parliament. Now, as it turns out, um, enough people vote on, uh, in favor of the Natal formula that that does become the basis of the so-called white Australia policy, and the same in New Zealand. Um, and they're under great pressure. Um, the Australian government is and the New Zealand government is from the British government and indeed the Japanese government at the time. Um, and, and so that becomes the mode uh, of restriction. But that, that's not going to be a, a long-lasting one in the case of New Zealand. And, and it's not what happens in North America. Uh, the, the Canadians actually reject that formula. They, they don't want a literacy, literacy test. Um, they come up with, with a couple of different solutions to that, one being as far as the Japanese are concerned, they follow the American lead um, and, and establish a diplomatic relationship with Japan that, that uh, results in a gentleman's agreement uh, that Japan agrees to limit the number of people it will allow to leave and come to Canada. And from the Canadian perspective, I think you know that they, they they see themselves as having uh, and seeking a relationship with Japan, especially a commercial relationship that's high on everyone's agenda. Uh, in the Canadian government at this time, and so they don't, you know, they want to treat with Japan as as a as a diplomatic issue. I think that's part of what's going on there. Why they reject the literacy test and, and adopt instead this diplomatic formula. Um, and then when it comes to South Asian migrants, the the Canadians come up with um, the continuous journey resolution, which stipulates that if you want to immigrate to Canada, you have to make a continuous journey. Um, from start to finish, from your homeland, from your place of birth to to Canada, um, and while that's quite easy for someone coming from uh, Europe, uh, especially Britain, it is impossible for someone coming from India, since there is no continuous passage from India to Ca- to British Columbia. Uh, you simply can't do it. You've got to change ships. Uh, or stop uh, stop off in Hong Kong you've got to refuel you've got to take on new passengers Singapore um, so there is no continuous journey and that's that's a, a ruse they use to get over that so so again you know the the British think they've got this this thing solved early on uh, in eighteen ninety seven with the Natal formula and it's it's uh, far more complicated as it turns out um, on the ground.
0: I think one of the, the sort of themes that emerges for me uh, out of all of these different policy solutions that are uh, crafted uh, to navigate between this tension between local needs and, and imperial priorities is, I think, as you say, one point, the kind of um, duplicitousness of it, right, the, or the duplicity of it, that, that it needs to be seen as non-racial uh, in, in character because it can't offend the Japanese empire uh, but it it still needs to sort of do um, or or achieve the results that the Australians or the Canadians want, and some might see that as a uh, kind of um, creative policy solutions or creative policymaking, uh, and and I suppose that would be a, a generous reading of of, of this history. Uh, but I think those those case studies are are really helpful to understanding, you know, sort of current policies and and sort of how. Uh, we might uh, critically uncover, you know, what is actually, you know, at work. What is this, for example, cl- colorblindness, as you said? You know, what does that actually mean? Um, I, since you brought up the continuous journey rule, I think maybe we can jump to to chapter five um, and talk about the Komagata Maru incident, um, which. Uh, some listeners may remember, is the steamship that a South Asian activist named Baba Gurdit Singh organized to challenge that policy. Um, and, and listeners may also recall that Justin Trudeau, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, apologized for the incident in, in the House of Commons in 2016. But I this incident stood out to me because it's an episode that highlights the ways in which Asian migrants and activists often took matters into their own hands in opposition to the desires and the policies of high-ranking government officials. So I wonder if you can speak a little bit as to how we think about the role of ordinary people in the story, right? Because we have uh, the cast of characters are overwhelmingly, I think, focused on um, ambassadors and uh, high commissioners and uh, secretaries of state. Um, how, do we, how do we sort of fit uh, the ordinary migrant or activist like Baba Gurdit Singh into this history?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and you know, so there's two things uh, that um, that I had to kind of do when I was when I was conceiving of this this project. Um, for me, there hadn't been enough attention paid to the diplomatic level, to the international level, to the state level. That seems like a counterintuitive thing to say, um, given that we've had a hundred years of historiography that's done only that, right? But I think. There was a lot of scholarship when I started doing this project. There's been a lot of scholarship that had done incredible work to excavate and uncover the role of ordinary people and especially uh, migrants in, um, in you know in restoring agency to to their to their migratory experience and to challenge. Uh, many of these state policies and, and there's just been a profusion of work that, that was just unbeatably good. I mean, it, you know, I'm sure you've discussed some of this stuff with, with the authors over the years and, and I'm thinking of Erica Lee's work and uh, Andrea Geiger's work and, and there's just Cornell Chang and there's just been a tremendous amount of work. Uh, that already did this and and what that work did for me was it was it allowed me to revisit I think uh, and this is my argument and I'm sticking to it uh, it allowed me to go back and revisit then what what that meant for the state uh, what that meant for the empire what that meant for the international level so I, I you know I intentionally kind of kept it at that that's uh, that level of analysis um, because I just felt like you know a that work had been done and it had been done extremely well, uh, and B it had uncovered for me then all new kinds of avenues uh, to explore. It, the the Komagata Maru uh, case is one where I think you know uh, Singh is is kind of a central character, and it does um, illustrate how how important individual migrants were and their experiences were. Uh, and I and I think you know he's one of the arguments I make in the book is. A lot of the historiography, a lot of the literature—not just on migration, but on any kind of uh, foreign relations or international relations history, um, especially during this period—is really focused on on flows and conduits and mobility and this kind of imagery, these kinds of metaphors. And what I was struck by revisiting this story is is that you know that these were. The, the actions of these white male administrators were in many ways um, you know the reaction to that mobility to that flow to that con to those conduits and I wanted to kind of explore that again um, having having had the benefit of all this other scholarship so for me you know I, I, I would have to have I would have to have done a um, quite different archival research to uncover the voices of, uh, uh, of you know um, the individual migrants um, it would have it would have greatly uh, changed changed the, the nature of the research in the book, I think, in, in a way that would have just made it too too much for a, uh, a dissertation. Um, and, and frankly, there was so much good work on that already. I saw this as an opportunity to go back. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, I have the occasional episode where you see the voices of individual migrants. I, I found a great document um, which had uh, a petition from the Victorian uh, – the state of Victoria, um, Indian pop, uh, representatives there, Indian migrants that, that had petitioned the Crown to basically uh, stop the Australian government from, from imposing these kinds of restrictions on, on fellow subjects of the British Empire. And they're very clear about the, the kind of pain and, and, uh, and hurt that this is causing them as fellow British subjects, you know, and how, how can we be treated like this? Um, so that's a kind of very poignant, I think, uh, document and of course that's that's what you get from looking at these kinds of levels. It's 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 a a completely different um, level of analysis.
0: Yeah, and of course, as you said, you know this this kind of work is an ongoing conversation. You know, in terms of revisions to, uh, you know, the sort of new social history and, and kind of uh, bringing the state back in or the empire back in. Uh, once once we've fleshed out that story, um, with the with the Time that we have left, I wonder if we can maybe concentrate on, on um, as we um, look at the end of the book, chapters uh, uh, six and seven, um, these are the chapters that deal with what happens to Asian mobility and the restriction of Asian mobility after World War I. Um, the story there is, uh, as you tell it, that, uh, you know, Japan was an ally uh, to uh, uh, Great Britain and, and uh had been um very forceful participants, um and and thought that they deserved uh, certain amounts of uh leeway and um and accommodation um in the aftermath of having participated in that in that conflict. But that's that's not what happens um uh, and, and, and the same is true for, for South Asians, of course, uh, who uh, uh, who had fought in, in World War I as well. Uh, but in neither of those cases does that turn out to be to be true. Uh, and you write about the three, uh, three sets of conferences uh, that occur, uh, the Imperial War Conferences in London in 1917 and 1918, the Peace Conference um, in Paris in 1919, and then the Naval Conference in Washington, D.C. in 1921. Um, again, all kinds of creative policymaking to skirt around the issue uh, of uh, South Asian and Japanese desires for mobility. Um, what are the issues uh, that come out of World War One, um, and and how do people uh, make policy around uh, these these tensions and continue to to restrict Asian mobility?
1: Yeah, th- these uh, it's one of my favorite chapters because I think I was able to do some things by by taking this kind of multi archival approach that that really enriched uh, the story we have of a very familiar. Um, period in, in history, of course. Um, so, just to go back to chapter five briefly, the rest of chapter five after the Komagata Maru uh, episode talks about the deteriorating relationship between Australia and Japan who are now allies in, in World War One, and, and I really trace this kind of, um, you know, they start off flush with the, the possibility of alliance and then it quickly transpires that, you know, racism and, and Australian racial policy is going gonna, is gonna to be a, a huge schism in that relationship. So by the time we get to, to the Paris Peace Conference, it's going to be the Australian representative, the Australian Prime Minister, William Morris Hughes, um, who's going to come to the fore, and is and he becomes my my muse um, in, in trying to figure out what what happened there. Um, and you know, Hughes is one of these characters in this book that I that I just became utterly fascinated by. He's a bombastic, uh, dynamic, irascible, unpleasant, uh, and endlessly fascinating individual. Um, uh, and so it was a real, a real treat to be able to get into his papers and some of the British papers and, and some of the Australian government papers about what what he did at Paris. Uh, and I really tell the story through through the lens of his experience. And essentially, you know, this is a this the Australian Prime Minister takes takes on the burden of essentially um, preventing Japan from achieving equality at Paris. The, the Japanese put forward um, what comes to be known as the racial equality amendment that they hope to put into the League of Nations covenant that Wilson and others are negotiating. And it starts off, you know, a fairly bold statement of racial equality but as it as it runs into opposition from, from the British delegation and especially Hughes, they soften it a couple of times and it becomes eventually a very innocuous, watered down statement of just everyone's equal and we should treat them as such. Um, But but Hughes cannot allow that to happen because he's terrified that if that becomes part of the League of Nations covenant covenant to which Australia is a a party, um, they're going to lose control over immigration policy and they're going to lose the ability to to restrict immigration. Um, And so he just goes absolutely apoplectic around Paris, um, being extremely vocal in opposition to any attempt to, to, uh, A, impose limits on Australian immigration policy, but B – um, admit any kind of racial equality for non-whites, and of course, the 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 subtext of all of this is he's not alone. I mean, he's he's representing the voice of his South African uh, compatriots, especially young Christian Smuts, who takes on a, a very uh, imposing role in Paris. Um, he's representing the New Zealand position, the Canadian position, the British position. I mean, the British can't readily admit racial equality when they have an empire largely of, of non white people. Um, and of course, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, the American president, has no intention of, of yielding to this because he's under incredible pressure from uh, from the Californians uh, in particular to, to not allow this to, to happen. And uh, Wilson, uh, Hughes actually goes to it quite often to the California press representatives in Paris to keep them apprised of what's happening to keep the pressure on Wilson, and so you know Hughes takes on this 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 burden of of ensuring the the uh, the, the rejection of the racial equality amendment, and in doing so really uh, incurs the 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 ire of the Japanese and the Japanese people more broadly, and, and as we go through this chapter, you start to see the kind of repercussions of of hughes's politics here and um you know there's a great deal of of, of tension rising in australian japanese relations as we move towards the end of the chapter so much so that that you know when he gets back to to australia he's triumphant and declares that you know the white australia policy is yours you may do with it as you will and then immediately starts you know to uh, uh, cabling the british uh, in london send me more ships i'm worried the japanese are going to attack so he, he's he's really caused a great deal of difficulty for uh, for for his country here by being so vocal and so bold uh, you see evidence in the book of, of other representatives who certainly agreed with him but kept their mouths shut because they realized they didn't have to take on that burden he was willing to do it for them. Uh, So to me, that was a that was a fascinating story of this stuff uh, of, 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 a, of, a, of a you know a, a racial um, exponent like Hughes shooting himself in the foot, shooting his, his dominion in the foot by pursuing this kind of politics so noisily and so so blithely. Um, and confidently. And, and then when you get to the Washington Naval Conference in 2122, 22 all of a sudden you have Australians and New Zealanders petitioning the British government to keep the, Aust- the Anglo-Japanese alliance in place because they've alienated them so much they would much rather have a, an ally aggrieved at them than uh, a non-ally aggrieved at them, which, which subsequently uh, is what happens. And the United States is putting enormous pressure on Britain. Uh, to jettison the Anglo-Japanese alliance. And by this time, Japan, there's a lot of um, sentiment in Japan that this, this alliance has run its course. But it's actually William Morris Hughes and, and uh, Massey Ferguson in, in, in New Zealand who are pushing the British government to keep this. So you have this kind of you know, incredible confidence and hubris uh, when you start off in this case uh, that culminates in in a complete reversal Um by, by the Australasians. So uh, it's a moment, I think, where, you know, there is a great deal of dupl- duplicity and deceit going on, and, and those are words I use a lot. Um, you have this moment where Hughes actually kind of jettisons all of that and, and goes on a rampage
0: through Paris, and you see the consequences, uh,
1: and, it, and it really backfires on him.
0: Well, then that brings us to um – to the seventh chapter, and you end the book uh, in the early 1920s. Um, The the seventh and final chapter of the book talks about what you call the the final significant outbreak of white activism against Japanese, South Asian, and Chinese mobility from 1920 to 1924, and and U.S. historians will be familiar with the Immigration Act of, of 1924. To me, the most riveting part of this chapter, I have to say, was the story you tell about how Secretary of State Charles Evan Hughes and the Japanese ambassador uh, Hanahara seemingly almost by accident bring about the end of the gentleman's agreement. You know, and this is one of these kind of examples of contingencies. And I'm not I'm not sure that it's a story that's really well known. And it's important, uh, of course, as you say in the in the chapter, because it leads to. Uh, or introduces this principle of sovereignty um, as uh, the the sort of um, overarching uh, principle by which uh, immigration uh, re- uh, restriction uh, will be determined. Can you tell us that story and and why it's significant to to this history?
1: Yeah, it's a remarkable story. I mean, what you, what you have, um, of course, in the United States by 1924 is a is a sentiment of of immigration restriction that goes beyond Asian immigration. Um, and there is a great deal of of, uh, of 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 support for that position in the Congress. So you know, I don't want to give the impression that Hanahara and, and Lodge are entirely responsible for this. If we were trending in that direction, but what happens essentially is, um, as we start to to think about national origins quotas, the conversation turns to finally now, um, exp- not explicitly, but uh, but but overtly. Um, in one way or another preventing Japanese immigration now and tearing up essentially the the gentleman's agreement that had been in place since 1908 um, the, the congress is deeply uncomfortable with or certain members of congress are deeply uncomfortable with the gentleman's agreement because it didn't exist in treaty essentially it was a it was an executive uh, agreement and therefore there was never a treaty in place that that um, that they could look at or or call on to to defend this this uh, this arrangement. So, Senate, you know, the, there's members of Congress that are just trying to get rid of it and replace it with something that can actually uh, they can point to uh, as an ironclad principle. Um, so, what they come up with, of course, is this concept of aliens ineligible for citizenship that was based on some recent Supreme Court cases that had determined that um, if, if you were ineligible for United States citizenship, then you could be um, you, and should be um, restricted from entering the United States as an immigrant. And that was uh, essentially based on the, the principle that if you were not white nor African-American, you um, as as the american law stated uh and, the, and the new, now the constitution stated that you should not be allowed to come into the united states because you couldn't naturalize and and that goes back to a couple of cases in 22 21. Um, so the Congress kind of seizes on that as, again, another deceit, another fiction that they can apply now to the Japanese. All other Asian peoples have already been uh, essentially prohibited from entering the United States by this point. The Japanese are the lone, uh, the lone uh, national group that, that still has this slight opening uh, under the gentleman's agreement. And so Congress determines to to create um, what some people call Japanese exclusion. It's technically not. It's an aliens ineligible for citizenship clause that will apply to the Japanese because everyone else is either covered by something else or restricted by something else. Um, Of course, the American Secretary of State, um, Charles Evans Hughes, is determined to, to retain this agreement. He understands what it means to Japan. He understands the problems it will cause if they unilaterally rip it up and, and get rid of it. And so he, he works closely with the Japanese uh, ambassador, Hanahara, to, to write essentially what they think is um, a measured and responsible response from the Japanese government. And Hanahara writes this this memo, it's about 12 or 13 pages long, if I recall correctly, outlining a very um, well-stated, and well-argued legal case um, essentially, uh, uh, one based in international law that that you know, And also uh, makes the point that the Japanese are well aware of what Congress is up to now. There's no secret here that they're using the Aliens Ineligible uh, for Citizenship Clause to, to work around uh, Japanese exclusion, but there is a line in there. There is a there is a line in there, uh, and it's just uh, completely innocuous in context. Well, it's not innocuous, but it's certainly meant innocuously in context that indicates there will be grave consequences uh, for Anglo uh, for American-Japanese relations if if Japanese are going to be unilaterally rejected. Again, that's a you know a fairly have uh, reasonable statement if you think about it, there will be grave consequences if if uh, japanese american relations are to to uh to uh, turn and so congress really seizes on that and opponents of Japanese immigration really seize on that to to essentially claim that japanese that japan has threatened um, threatened the united states and and all of a sudden you 've got a lot of senators who are wary of of tearing up the uh the agreement, uh, who suddenly come on board and, and announce their great, uh, great disgust for, for Japanese threats, um, it it's it really has the air of a manufactured crisis. It was not what Hanahara, and it certainly wasn't what Hughes intended. And you and you have a lot of um, efforts by Hanahara and Hughes to kind of um, to point this out, uh, and it goes nowhere, unfortunately. And all of a sudden, you, you end up with uh, now aliens in other ineligible citizenship going into the new immigration law uh, and effectively banning Japanese immigration. So it is a tremendously poignant story. You, you know, Hanahara resigns and goes back to Japan, just a broken man. I mean, it's uh, it's tremendously poignant. Um, and again, he's, he's basically taken advantage of, I think, by, by members of Congress who were determined to append this uh, gentleman's agreement that they did not see as ironclad enough or tangible enough to ensure complete Japanese exclusion in an era of intense nativism. I mean, this is... Uh, this is without question, as, as I'm sure your listeners know, a, a moment of, of great xenophobia and nativism in the United States. And, uh, it, they're fighting against the tide, both
0: of them here. Well, I think, unfortunately, uh, we are uh, running out of time. Um, and and uh, there's so much more that I would love to, to talk to you about, uh, David, about this book. Uh, I think it's important to to... Maybe wrap up for our listeners to, to know that, you know, at least from, from my point of view, um, the, the, the title of the book is really uh, um, wonderful in how it communicates um, the, the message of the book, The Burden of Supremacy, of White Supremacy obviously is carried by the people who are excluded. That's, I think, um, uh, um, a given. But I think that, as you point out, um, through so many different um, case studies and and um, examples over, over three continents, uh, through four continents, um, that the burden of white supremacy also fell on um, the the nations and the empires themselves, who were trying to struggle with uh, these these white supremacist feelings um, and, and ways to manage them. That it caused great discord and great disharmony. Um, required all kinds of again creative, duplicitous um, you know uh, uh, policy making, uh, and ended up with in, in some cases really uh, um, uh, poignant stories like Hanahara of of, of, of People who are just broken by by this um, by the system and and this this work um, uh, around Asian uh, exclusion and restriction. Um, I think as we as we conclude though, David, I wondered if you could uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on now uh, and what listeners might look forward to uh, if they enjoyed the burden of white supremacy. Well, uh, it's a, it's a
1: slightly more. Uh... <laughs> Fun topic for me, at least. Um, but it's going to unfortunately mean I never come back on this particular podcast because I'm moving away from migration now. My, my new work is, um, is, is going to be a book on imports to the United States in the 19th century. Um, kind of roughly from 1812 to 1914, and, and I'm taking a very thematic approach to um, to imports. I'm I'm moved by um, what I think is is another long overdue move in American foreign relations scholarship that encourages us to look at what the world does to America, not just what America does to the world. And in that respect, migration, there's a link with migration, right? Uh, clearly, you know, migration to the United States infuses and uh, and influences the United States with global influence. And so now I'm going to turn to imports. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly uh, inspired by, by uh, some recent work that, uh, Kristen Hoganson's book, Consumers Imperium, is a brilliant, brilliant exploration of of, um, women in the Midwest, uh, middle class women in the the upper Midwest um, at the turn of the century, turn of the 19th century, 20th century. Who are who are engaging with imports and what they make of them, what they think about them, what they do with them, what they what they use them for, what it makes them uh, experience, and how it makes them think about Americans' place in the world, and especially the place of, of uh, women in the world. And I'm interested in kind of stretching that out and thinking more broadly about how imports to the United States affect, influence uh, American society, American diplomacy, American economy, of course. In all kinds of different ways, so so that's something I'm pursuing now. Uh, You know, it's been a tremendously invigorating uh, study so far. I'm having a lot of fun. It's uh, a lot less heavy than uh, you know. I'm I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know who study this stuff. It it has a kind of what I like to call a clockwork orange quality to it. I mean, you spend your days. Um you know, reading some deeply unpleasant material uh and listening to the rantings and ravings of some of some deeply racist individuals uh, so it's it 's actually been quite nice to to get away from that uh, and start thinking about imports. I would also like to point out by the way that this may sound all terribly uh, terribly venal, but I am not chasing donald trump i 'm not the, the historical equivalent of an ambulance chaser here I, I keep coming up with these topics and uh, and then suddenly they become, uh, they become current events. And that was not my intention with either of these projects, but uh, unfortunately they are. And I guess it shows the, the abiding significance of, of migration and, and importation and Americans' engagement with the world. And it's, it, Some of these things just, just haunt us uh, throughout our history.
0: Well, I think it's, it's helpful to still, regardless, have that historical uh, context, obviously, for these questions. So I appreciate the work that you did for, for the burden of white supremacy. I, I look forward to, to hearing more about that project in the future. And most of all, uh, David, I want to thank you for, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation and getting to read the book. So thank you again.
1: I appreciate it a great deal. Thanks for having me, Ian. And, uh, and thanks to everybody for, for listening.
0: That was my conversation with Professor David Atkinson of Purdue University about his book, The Burden of White Supremacy, containing Asian migration in the British Empire and the United States, published in 2016 by the University of North Carolina Press. I'm Ian Shin, and this is New Books in Asian American Studies. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.